This talk from Titus chapter 3 is entitled Gospel-Fueled Holiness in Action and was the fifth and final keynote address of TGCA's 2022 National Conference. The speaker, Gary Miller, is Principal of Queensland Theological College and is a member of the TGCA Council. kindness and mercy and love to people like us. Thank you that you have spoken to us through your word, and we ask that you would do what you've promised again, that you might equip and embolden us to stand in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, scattered across this nation and this world, for our good and for his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospels in our souls. Gospel truth is the only root where gospel holiness will grow. I reckon John Owen must have been listening to Kanishka and Paul and Murray and Richard as they've opened up the book of Titus for it. It's come across again and again, hasn't it? There isn't any other kind of holiness but gospel-fueled holiness. There isn't any other kind of gospel-fueled life but a holy life. And if we get that connection, if we actually understand the title of this conference, then it really will make us stand out. In our chapter this afternoon, as Paul describes this gospel-fueled holiness, which he's been writing about for the first two chapters, his point is hard to miss. To be a Christian is to be different. If we're in Christ, if we've been justified by faith, if we follow Jesus, we will not blend in easily and painlessly to our world. We will inevitably find ourselves making a stir, causing issues, attracting derision and abuse, provoking endless confusion without even trying. And in fact, even if we tried to avoid this, what Christ has done for us and in us means we will always stand out. I've been in Australia for 11 years. I've been a citizen for well over half that time. I proudly and happily carry my Australian passport when I travel. Believe me, I wholeheartedly support Australia in the ashes and any other time they're playing England. I, I, happily, I happily call Australia home but as you may just have picked up, every time I open my mouth, I announce to the world that I am not from here. Well, I have something to break to you. Belonging to Christ has the effect of making Irish men of all of us. <laughs> we all stand out as soon as we wake up in the morning, as soon as we get out of bed and open our mouths. Paul says, this is the way it is. And it's always the way it is for the people of God. God calls us to be different because we are. 
He has made us different. He's making us more different and will make us completely different. Standing out is now in our DNA, so we'd better get used to it and embrace it and celebrate the fact that gospel-fueled holiness and action just can't go unnoticed. Which brings us to Titus 3 verse 1, where Paul starts by telling Titus to make sure that he urges the Cretan Christians along with those of us who read his words now to be different. We've heard repeatedly that life in Crete could be pretty challenging. It was a hard-drinking, rough-edged culture. Most people appeared to have been spoiling for a fight most of the time. So Paul tells Titus to remind God's people to be different. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. The first thing to notice there is that Paul tells Titus to remind them of things that they already know and should be living out already. I don't know if you've thought of it like this, but being a Christian, in my experience, is largely a matter of doing things that I've known for ages over and over again. Holiness isn't particularly mysterious. It's doing the obvious, living out of what we already know. It's not complicated, it's just hard. And that means the best, most necessary, most important, most loving thing we can do for each other is remind each other of what we already know, what God has done and is doing and will do for us in the gospel. And in this case, the blindingly obvious reality that we should be different. That's the role of pastors and leaders, leaders, but it's actually all our role as we speak the gospel into each other's lives, to remind each other of the blindingly obvious, the difference that God has made. Now, I've got to say, when I started out as a pastor, fresh out of college, I was looking forward to a lifetime of wowing people with genuinely new insights that would blow their minds and change their lives. I was not going to give people a bland diet. I wanted to serve up oysters and caviar every week. Now I see my role a little bit differently. I think I still aim high, but I'm actually deeply content if I manage to serve up the theological equivalent of freshly baked sourdough that's lovingly prepared, and a personally embodied statement of the obvious. John Stott once wrote, so all conscientious Christian teachers, once they are delivered from the unhealthy lust for originality, take pains to make old truths new and stale truths fresh. And what's the obvious fresh truth that Titus is to impress on the church family in Crete? that being in Christ means being different. What does that look like? It's the rest of verses 2 and 3. Paul highlights seven implications of the gospel, which it would be really good for Titus to emphasize in his ministry on the fractious island. The Greek historian Polybius, writing a couple of hundred years earlier, had said that life on Crete was characterized by insurrections, murders, and internecine wars. Paul says, Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. 
see executive summary of Paul's standard approach on how to deal with those in power. But remember, Paul and Titus had been working together for most of a lifetime. No doubt Titus had heard Paul on this subject more than once. So here Paul just sums it up for us. I think that's why we need to read these words alongside Romans 13, where Paul spells out his theologically shaped position for the benefit of those who hadn't heard him in the flesh. This is Romans 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who are right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. It's also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants. Did you get that bit? Who give their full time to government. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Revenue, then revenue. Respect, then respect. Of honor, then honor. Now, I'm going to say, for most of the past, well, almost 120 years since Federation, I don't think it's been all that hard for Christians in Australia to hear those words. Plenty of our leaders in the past have had a deeply held and solid Christian faith. Loads more may not have been followers of the Lord Jesus, but were either sympathetic enough to the gospel uh, to respect a broadly biblical framework of morality or politically savvy enough to know that open opposition to Christianity was unlikely to get them elected. But not any more. We've had a taste of the future. It makes Romans 13 much harder to swallow and live out. If you live in Victoria, if you've listened to the news in the past two weeks, if you can see what's coming. But that actually brings us much closer to what Romans 13 must have, have sounded like in the first century. The book of Romans was written to the Christians in Rome. Paul insists that the emperor and every authority under him is an appointed servant of God to whom we must submit until such times as there is a clear and direct conflict between what God asks of us and what the state demands. For Roman Christians and Cretan Christians, and now I think we can add Australian Christians, this really sticks in our throats. Respect and honor those who persecute us especially if they're in power. Hear Jesus' words from Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain in the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is what God asks of us. This is who we are. We are those who have been and are being changed. And as a result, we will be able to submit to others, even to those who are antagonistic. Is this hard? Of course it's hard. It's hard for people like us to submit to anyone else, whoever they are. Calvin said, by nature, we all desire imperious power so that no one is willing to submit himself to another. And yet, this is what we've got to do, because we're different, because we've already given the whole box and dice away. We've submitted to the Lord Jesus because He is our master. We are freed and commanded to be respectful and compliant to those whom God Himself has set over us in the practical details of life. So, we respect the ATO and our state and federal governments, and hard though it may be, Those guys from Brisbane City Council in the blue and yellow cars who dole out exorbitant parking fines so liberally. We respect them. That's the first way to be different. The second, we're supposed to be obedient. It's not complicated. Paul has in mind here the action that just flows out of a submissive attitude to authority. Our basic respect will spill over into straightforward compliance as we submit truthful tax returns and cross the street at crossings and show up to voted elections and don't use our phones in the car. But that's far from all we have to do. Titus then urges, Titus is to urge him to be ready to do whatever is good. The gospel doesn't just lead us to be compliant, which for some of us is hard enough, but proactive in seeking out ways and opportunities to do every good work. We're to be different because we are to be poised to act for the benefit of other people. Freed up from self-preoccupation, we're to be constantly looking out for other people, looking for opportunities to show the same kindness that God has shown to us, to anyone and everyone, anytime and anywhere. It's a key component of being different. One of the really challenging things about the environment we find ourselves in just now is that in the eyes of our society at least, we have been completely outdone in doing good. Completely. We've got to take seriously the fact that as the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever has been the truth in the past, right now we are not known as those who will go to the least and the lost wherever they are. We are not seen as those who will care for the despised, who will fight for the marginalized and abused. Instead, we are universally painted as those who exclude, as defenders of ourselves and excluders and abusers of others. Whether that's fair or not isn't really the point. The profound challenge is that the that the gospel-fueled holiness that God demands of us 
must drive us out to be a people who are constantly poised to do whatever is good without thought to ourselves for the glory of our God and King. And if we do that, we will need to make sure that we slander no one. Now, I think in any generation, a refusal to snipe or undermine or run other people down or lie about them will make us stand out. The phrase is kind of arresting in its scope and lack of qualification. We should not speak evil of anyone, period. Why not? Well, in part at least, because when we do that, we show that in the moment, we've actually forgotten the gospel. We are speaking of other people in a way which doesn't fit with the fact that we've already admitted that we are messed up, broken, rebellious people for whom Christ had to die. When we put other people down, it's a denial of the fact that we are creatures of grace. Instead, it sets us up as God Himself judging others. Now, of course, many of us, especially if you've been around church for a long time, we're highly skilled in looking respectable and smart, even as we act in deeply ungodly ways. So, the next time you're tempted to give a, a deep and penetrating analysis of someone else's motives for their actions, without, of course, having spoken to them, let alone prayed for them, stop and think, is this slander? The next time you give an opinion on someone, with what you know to be a little much, a little too much heat, but wrap it up as insight. Stop and pause because gospel-fueled holiness demands that we slander no one. It also makes sense then, Titus, to, Titus is to tell people to avoid quarreling. Quarreling generally comes from our insistence that our preference, our perspective, our interests prevail. And I look forward to welcoming you to Brisbane in 2024. It's, it, it's, it's about valuing being right over relationships. Now, I confess it's hard for someone who has been described by his wife as living by the, by the mantra, often wrong, never uncertain, to actually read these words. It takes a deep-rooted humility created and maintained by the gospel not to fight with people. But the instant we start to take offense at the way in which we've been treated, the moment a conversation starts to heat up, it's desperately difficult to keep selfishness at bay. As we look out for number one, as we try to win at all costs, or alternatively, to just withdraw and disengage from a, an ultimately selfish desire to protect ourselves. Either way, our concern's not for others. But the way of the gospel is to steer away from fights and pushes us to be considerate. Now, Paul uses this word in the next, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 10.1, in treating the church by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, to treat Him properly. Same word you find in Matthew 11, where Jesus says in gent He's gentle and lowly of heart. Matthew 21, Jesus, the humble king, rides in on a donkey. In every case, the distinguishing feature of Jesus is that He's thinking about others not himself. He's dying to himself for the sake of others. To be considerate is a far-reaching mark of Christ-likeness. You see, we are to be different ultimately because we're supposed to be like Christ. 
The gospel at work in us slowly but surely deals with the fact that we are curved in on ourselves, self-preoccupied, self-centered, to bend us out, to open us up to be other-centered, self-forgetful, to show a considerateness embodied by the Lord Jesus. And then he adds one more thing. Remind them always to be gentle towards everyone. If we had time to get Simon back up to do not just the whole of Titus, but the whole of the pastoral epistles, I think we'd pick up that over and over and over again, Paul tells Timothy and Titus to be gentle. Now, I know that's harder for some of us than others. Some of us are not particularly gentle by nature. We are hard-edged or mischievous or stubborn or anxious or avoidant or flippant or outspoken, not really gentle. But here, Paul insists that God, through the gospel, through the work of His Spirit in us, produces the likeness of Christ as He softens us, and this gentleness becomes a reality. The way in which we treat all kinds of people is mellowed and sweetened. We start to show a gloriously consistent tenderness that pays no attention to who it is we're dealing with or speaking to or what they might be able to give to us, but simply shows grace because we have shown grace. So, writing to his younger protege, Paul gives us and Titus a seven-part part picture of what Christ-likeness looks like and what it means to live in a way which is beautifully, humbly, attractively different. And remember, there isn't really anything new here. The New Testament's littered with this insistence. In Romans, rather than being conformed to the world, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Galatians, we're to show the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. In Philippians, we're to be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation as we shine like lights in the world. In Colossians, we're to put to death what's earthly and put on as God's chosen ones, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In Ephesians, we're to walk as children of the light. As God's people... We're supposed to be different, not least because the gospel has so lit up our lives that it just feels plain wrong to continue living as if we don't know God. And while it's true that this is all ultimately shaped by the beauty of Jesus and empowered by the Spirit, before we get to gasp at the wonder, we do need to feel the weight of this very convicting to-do list. And also Paul's short to-don't list in verse 3. He characterizes life without God in ways which mirror the seven positive traits. He says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul knows that ultimately there is nothing attractive about life without God. As Richard I hinted earlier, at times we get sucked into thinking that living for ourselves, doing what we want when we want to do it, not doing anything when we don't want to, would be so much more satisfying. It's a better option. 
But Paul says, no. Living in rebellion against God, living without Christ is cosmically stupid. It's not freedom. It's the most tragic kind of slavery. It's selfishness and will lead inexorably to bitterness and death and the breakdown in the very fabric of our society as people who are made to bask in and share the love of God turn on each other. There are times when it is easy to think that people that are not Christians are living on the fun side of the island, but nothing could be further from the truth. There's nothing beautiful or even finally desirable about living for ourselves. Sin is catastrophically stupid. It's repeating the choice of Adam and Eve who swapped life with God to rebel against them. They lost everything. That's how sin works. And yet we still sin thinking that we'll be better off. It robs us of God and security and satisfaction and sours everything we have. We need to remember that as we look at our world. We need to look at our friends and feel our hearts breaking for them. We need to think of kids in school and long for them to hear of the Lord Jesus. We need to watch our friends or our neighbors or people in church who are walking away from Christ and realizing that everything is at stake and do all in our power to call them back. Not least because of this horrendous depiction of the reality of life outside Christ. Now, I'll i just tell you that something happened yesterday at this point. Uh, I was in college, sent my talk through for Fiona, my wife, to have a, to have a look, look at, as she often does for me. Came back in. I had, my, Fiona had a look on her face that I just dread seeing because the look says, it's quite an achievement to convey this in a look, but it is, I love you, I support you, you're my best friend, what were you thinking of? And I said, she said, I think, I think it's better if you just go and look at the comments that I'd made. So, I mean, at this stage, my stomach is in my mouth thinking, am I going to be up all night, you know, for the next two nights in Melbourne? And went, worked through the talk, made a, you know, some really helpful suggestions on the way through. And then it came to, to this point. And she said, you really need to show them Jesus. I don't know why you haven't. I said, I've only got to verse 3. You know, like, verse 4 is coming. <laughs> I went back upstairs, and Fiona said, so, you know, have you finished? I said, yeah. And she said, so quickly? <laughs> she said, like, have you written the show them Jesus bit? And I said, well, about half the talk was about that. She said, what do you mean? She says, you mean it didn't stop on page seven? <laughs> the email somehow had corrupted the document. I'm feeling that that was the end of the talk, all right? So please, no one leave. We get to Jesus. But just before we do, sit with this for a moment. Let's make sure what's at stake here. Let's make sure what the gospel does. It, provi it 
it produces this vast chasm between those who are gospel people, who together make up the beautiful church that Murray was talking about this morning from, from chapter 2, and those who are without hope and without God in the world. This is a stark choice. And one of the challenges before us is to get on the front foot and to prevent a glorious, alternative, compelling, gospel-shaped reality to our world, which really is forgiving, which is inclusive beyond our wildest dreams, which is affirming where people really flourish because it all flows from the difference that Christ has made in verses 4 to 7. And Paul is saying, think of what Christ has done and is doing and will do to make us different. Now, Titus 3, 4 to 7 is one of those passages that's so condensed and rich that it's often suggested that a bit of it might have been part of an early Christian hymn or a confession of faith for new converts. We can't be sure of that, but it is just one of the most richly condensed and concise statements of the work of Christ for us in the whole of the New Testament. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us gen generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. The key to Paul's point is at the start of verse 5. <laughs> he saved us. God the Father has intervened powerfully and dramatically in the Lord Jesus to make it possible for us to live the beautiful life that He's been describing. God has broken into our lives and taken hold of us. How could we not live in a way which is different? That would be so epically ungrateful. That's the core idea. But there's so much more here. The mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is described as the moment when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. The fact that Jesus Himself embodied kindness and lavished extravagant, enduring love on us demands that we embrace Him and live like Him. The fact that the Father's initiative had absolutely nothing to do with us, that it wasn't because of anything we did, but because of His mercy, should surely soften us to the point that we say thank you and express that in a new life. But God has done more even than simply inspiring or being generous to us. He has transformed us through this washing of rebirth and renewal by the Spirit whom He's poured out on us. The fact that God is Trinity isn't always crystal clear in the Bible, but it is here. The Father sends the Son who pours out the Spirit on us, and the Spirit makes a profound and deep-rooted difference which Paul describes as the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He just keeps piling metaphors up. What does the Spirit do? Washes us clean, brings us to new birth, reboots us so that we can live differently. God's act of justifying us, acquitting us, wrapping us in, in Christ's perfect righteousness as real-time consequences. Right now, it makes us heirs of the hope of eternal life. 
We have been changed. We are being changed. We will be changed. And that's got to change the trajectory of our lives so that we start to think and act as those who are incredibly part of the royal family of God, whose destiny has been completely altered so that we start to live as those who belong to the King. As we saw earlier in verses 11 to 14, where Paul backed up his appeal to teach grace to all kinds of people, the older men, younger men, and so on, with a, with a majestic explanation of what God has done in Christ, he does it again here. Be different because Christ has saved us. I think there is a sense in which in this letter to Titus, we see Paul unplugged. <laughs> He's talking to Titus, whom he trusts implicitly. Because he's known and loved him for years, he shoots from his inspired hip, going straight to the heart of things. Just goes, tell them to be different, Titus. But Paul's incapable of just telling people to do the right thing. <laughs> so he keeps doubling back to the event that changes everything, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus, where we see the grace of the Father and the love of the Son and then the power of the Holy Spirit in action making it possible for us to live differently. So, do we? We kind of all knew the question was coming. It's really been coming all the way through the, these chapters of Titus. doesn't make it any easier to answer. But now is the moment for us to feel profoundly uncomfortable. The Father has saved us through the work of Christ and the impact and influence of the Spirit. That should show in our aspirations, our priorities, our attitudes, and our actions. It should show in the way in which we treat people in church, people in our families, people on the street, people on the train, people sleeping in doorways, people across our nation and our world. It should affect the way in which we spend our money and where we choose to live, how we speak, when we laugh. It all matters. We know it all matters because we know what life without God is like, and we know what a difference God has made in our lives through Christ. Being different matters. So Paul says, Titus, remind them who they are. <laughs> we are people whom Christ loves whom Christ came for, whom Christ empowers to live as His people. This is who we are to be. So with that, Paul leaves Titus with three things to concentrate on, and then we're done. From verse 8, Titus is told by Paul, stay focused. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul clearly wants Titus to stay focused on the world-shaping, life-changing message that he's just summarized. You know, in one way, the, the book of Titus is a fairly long statement of the obvious. 
could say that the past two days of the Gospel Coalition Conference is a two-day statement of the obvious. Actually, if you said that to me, I think I would say, thank you very much. We are the Gospel Coalition. <laughs> In one way, there's nothing new here. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. <laughs> Those who've trusted in God should live like it. There are five of these trustworthy sayings in the pastoral. This is the only one in Titus. It's Paul's way of underlining it. This really matters. Stress these things so that God's people will get the connection between the gospel and the holiness that flows from the gospel. Paul says because he believes that the gospel is excellent and profitable for people. So he says, Titus, stay focused on the gospel. In the economy of God, it's only the gospel that has the power to thrill and equip and motivate and transform people. Let's stay focused on the gospel, brothers and sisters. And then let's stay united. Verse 9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments, quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. We don't know exactly what they were arguing about, presumably because they were unprofitable and useless. Paul's not going to waste ink on them. It seems that some people are getting embroiled in really dumb arguments, probably vaguely related to the genealogies in Genesis and the laws in the rest of the Pentateuch. These old-style Jewish controversies are causing all sorts of issues. They're doing nobody any good at all. Paul says to Titus, do not get sucked into this. Don't get sidetracked. It's unprofitable, worthless, divisive. See, one of the things about the rich and sweeping and nourishing, variegated, transformative gospel of the Lord Jesus is that when we're focused on its message, it draws us to others who have been changed and are living the same message. If we focus on the main things, we will find ourselves standing with, working alongside, praying for brothers and sisters who have been mastered by the same vision. We may differ on some details, but honestly, these differences on ecclesiology or eschatology pale into insignificance between the towering truths that bind us together. The challenge that we will face as the pressure builds in our society, if that's the way we're going, is that we stay focused on the gospel and stay united on the things that really matter, the core of the gospel and a gospel-shaped philosophy of ministry, the kind of thing that we're on about in TGC, not least because it is so encouraging to meet people we've never met before and within two or three minutes, feel like family because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I pray that's been your experience here. It's been mine. I, I, at the very start of the conference, about the first person, person I met when I arrived was Kanishka. And I said, Kanishka, it's so good to see you. And he just smiled and he said, Gary, it is so good to be somewhere where people are glad to see me. <laughs> but that actually encapsulates all of our experience. We scatter into a world which is dying without Christ and opposed to the gospel, and we seek to love it and reach it and serve it, and we come back together. 
and say, boy, it's good to see you. Let's speak the gospel to each other and send each other out again. I think this is a timely word for us because it's very easy to get sidetracked into stuff that leads to division. We've seen that over these past couple of years. I haven't heard, at least in Queensland, of people fighting over the intricacies of unorthodox Jewish myths. But there have been lots of other issues that have caused havoc among us by secondary issues that aren't actually the gospel. For some of us, politics can easily become the thing that displaces the gospel from its central position, a threat I think we all felt at some level during the the pandemic. For others, it will be the immensely complex and sensitive debate raging around issues of gender. For others still, at times, it can be the model of ministry that we're convinced will be the silver bullet to enable us to reach the world or the kind of apologetic or evangelistic approach that we think is desperately needed. It's really easy to be distracted, even divided by good things. Let's do everything in our power to make sure this doesn't happen. Not to be distracted, but to stay united as people who are devoted to, centered on, immersed to, committed to living and speaking the gospel. Not because the implications of the gospel aren't important, not because secondary issues are irrelevant, but because we can't afford to separate over secondary things because only the gospel itself is the main game. Such a serious issue that Paul insists Titus has to deal firmly with it in the local church. Verse 10, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. Pretty strong words, aren't they? It's because Paul realizes that holding our opinions on secondary issues with a passion that should be reserved for the gospel itself is damaging. And Paul is in no doubt that someone who persists in driving people apart, in damaging people in the local church, in the ministry of the local church, or in fracturing relationships between local churches rather than strengthening our partnership in the gospel has to be dealt with straight away. Two warnings, and after that, ignored, cut off. To refuse to act for the good of God's gospel people according to Paul, is to announce that you're warped and sinful, bent on sinning. See, the gospel matters more than us. Gospel partnership matters more than us. So let's not be distracted. Let's not lose our grip on the gospel. And whatever we do, let's not undermine the vibrant, purposeful unity which God creates through the gospel. It's the gospel who that brings us to life. It's the gospel which makes us different. It's the gospel which equips us to live differently. It's through the gospel that God reveals Himself to us and unites us to Christ and each other. So let's not let that happen. Don't be distracted. Keep the main thing the main thing and do everything in your power to maintain the unity of the gospel because that's how we can most effectively advance the cause of Christ. And one more thing. Let's stay soft. 
I think there's a strong sense that this letter is written against a background of countless long journeys and late-night conversations about the power and beauty of the gospel. At the end, Paul's almost casual in the way in which he reminds his young friend about a series of things he already knows just to remind him not to forget them. He's very warm as he deals with a few practicalities before he closes off. And it's quite striking that in a letter where Paul has been almost strident at points about the centrality and importance of the gospel and standing out in a challenging world, that he's so tender-hearted at the end. You can see that in the deliciously mundane details of the closing paragraph. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Now, Paul's going to send Tychicus or Artemis to relieve Titus in Crete, almost certainly so that Titus can join him. Paul wants Titus to come with him and probably to join him in his mission to Spain. He then tells Titus in verse 13, do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they've got everything they need. We don't know who Zenos the lawyer is. Apollos, we get snatches of, but here... Paul says, make sure they get enough to eat, get the resources they need to continue their journey when they stop off in Crete. It's kind of a little worked example of the kind of gospel-fueled holiness that he longs to see. Then this, he says, remember, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for other people's urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. And then he signs off in a way which assumes that Titus knows who's with them and who to pass Paul's greeting on to. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. You, you, know, you know that, Titus. Grace be with you all. See, this chapter is all about the gospel, staying focused, staying united. But remember, for Paul, being about the gospel means being all about people. He cares more, not less. So as those who gather around the gospel, let's always, always make sure that we stay soft because the gospel produces tenacity and courage and gentleness. It makes us like the Lord Jesus Christ. In many ways, this letter is not complicated. In many ways, the message of this conference has not been complicated. But it is a message we desperately need to embrace. Paul is, Paul is clear in what he tells Titus. Teach the gospel in the power of Jesus. Live the gospel for the glory of Jesus. Be different. Whatever else you do, live a life of gospel-fueled holiness and keep doing it for the rest of your life. It's the only life really worth living. It's the only way to a life that counts, a life that is richly, eternally productive. And it's the only life that satisfies. The American Jonathan Edwards once said this, holiness is a most beautiful and lovely thing. We drink in strange notions of holiness from our childhood as if it were a melancholy, morose, and unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in holiness but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the prospect that God has held out to us over these couple of days. May he grant us the wisdom and the strength and the grace to display this gospel-fueled holiness, whether we're locked up, locked down, or roaming free, whether we're respected or despised, whether we live or die. For when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we pray that in your kindness this afternoon, you would show us more of the beauty and kindness and power of the Lord Jesus that we might live for Him. Amen. This talk has been brought to you by the Gospel Coalition Australia. Visit our website at thegospelcoalition.org.au to find other resources for your encouragement.